the old Lancashire finalists take the field at Wembley. Manchester United in dark shirts, Blackpool in white. It's the North's big day. This is the Football Kit Podcast and we welcome you to episode 21. I'm Les of Hull City Kits. I'm Dennis from Museum of Jerseys. And I'm Gav, also known as the Kit Geek. Searching for pretty poly on a search engine might have your partner assuming you have a leg fetish, but it's not high denier tights we're looking for, but rather a new book charting the history of the football shirt. What I said to Les and Gav was, guys, I really think we need more Ireland content on the podcast. And what they came back with was Alex Ireland, the author of Pretty Polly, The History of the Football Shirt. Welcome, Alex. Hello again. Thanks for the uh, invite. No problem. Delighted to have you back again so soon after a question of strips. Questions will be a bit more open. And you haven't got to carry me this time either. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get on with the questioning, let's get an early plug in. Where can people get hold of Pretty Polly book, Alex? Yeah, so as Les alluded to, you you could find yourself uh, in a pair of ladies' tights rather than with a hardback book. So uh, if you do want to hunt it down, it's best either Pretty Polly Alex Ireland or Pretty Polly The History of the Football Shirt if you're Googling it. But it should be available online, offline, Amazon. There's a great independent bookseller, Stanchion, if you want to support an independent or, yeah, find it. I've been posting it pretty much every day from Alex D. Ireland, so say there haven't been any negative reviews calling you Alex Dyerland, have there? Uh, no, no, but but I think you've probably given people some ammunition there. <laughs> so Alex, your day job has got you analysing and teaching musculoskeletal development and movement, yet by night you're a kitted crusader championing long sleeve German club shirts from the 1990s. I just wondered if you'd tell us the story, the genesis of using your day-to-day academic rigour to produce a book on football shirts? Um, I think there's sort of some crossover. I suppose it's it's that trying to kind of hunt out information and that uh, wanting everything to be really thorough and generally well-researched. All, although I remember you both getting out your red pen quite a few times. But I, I think, yeah, that, that looking to hunt for the, the truth and being used to do that is is one thing. And then I think we, we talked about the, the meeting. I think the idea of delivering these kind of big scientific projects where you have to write maybe 50 or 100,000 words, I think that made the daunting prospect of delivering a 55,000, 60,000 word book a bit more palatable. That it, The impossible task had been done a couple of times before and you sort of realise even in the depths of it when you're only a third of the way through and it feels like you've exhausted all the material in your head, you know, you can kind of keep plugging away at it. And was there anything in the course of your research that you came across some bit of fact or some some history 
that really kind of surprised or shocked you? Like, any, were there any misconceptions you've been living under that were just blown to pieces? I think just generally, I'm, I'm sure if you asked me about lots of the firsts at the start of the process, I think we probably would have all given similar answers. You know, it would have been either Eintracht, Braunschweig or Hettering Town were the first sponsors. And then uh, I think Chelsea, who were the first numbered shirts in around 1930. And then you find out that everything's happened 20, 30, 40, 50 years earlier. But just because you didn't have radio, you didn't have television, you didn't have that kind of connectivity, that people didn't link up and nick these ideas so readily. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's great, I suppose, just to have everything all together. Yeah, I think I think that that's it. You know, there's been you know fantastic websites like like yours, the work that Gav and Les has done. If we think of John Devlin, obviously of of this parish, there's been lots of brilliant articles written on bits of kits, and it was I, the idea of trying to bring maybe that simpler story of the whole thing coming together. So maybe not as well, definitely not in as much detail as some other books, but you know that whole 150 years. And, and so, are you kind of trying to find the balance between producing something that the kit nerds would love and that the casual football fan who mightn't be as into the nitty gritty will pick up and read and, and find interesting. Absolutely. And, and time will tell how well that, that balance has been managed. But, you know, when I, I sent it to, to you and, and to Les and I think that was a real relief when you came back and said it wasn't utter shit and <laughs> A and, and B that, you know, that you'd learned things because I, I did want it to be something, obviously for somebody who is just a general football fan, sees a kit and sort of thinks I might like this, that's great. But, but I did want there to be something that, you know, people like yourself, uh, you know, Gav, Dennis, John, that you'd also be able to pick it up and learn something. I didn't want it to be kind of an ABC kids guide to kits, you know, that there would be something in it for people who were a bit more serious about the hobby. One of the things I think I find really interesting about the book is with football kits, it's a very visual topic and a visual medium, yet you haven't got a lot of pictures in there, which is an interesting take. Was that a purposeful decision to keep on the kind of text front, the the depth front, the detail front, rather than, you know, a lot of the kit books we see are, here's a kit and here's a little bit of a story. What kind of made your decision to structure the book the way you did? I think that was it, that it was just a lot of story to tell. And I, I sort of had an idea that it would be quite long. And I mean, it's 220 odd pages as it is. So if we'd had a, a decent amount of pictures, you know, it would have been a really kind of weighty tome. And I, I think other books, you know, like the True True Colours books, like Neil Hurd's book and, and so on. Obviously, Dennis's type too. I should know it. It's right on the, the Yeah, I, I was involved in the second, uh, the second version of that. Yeah, football type too. Yeah, so th- there's lots of kit books out there that have those beautiful images and a lot of the kind of classic kits have already been covered. So I did want to make it sort of more of the story. And then in the middle, there is a, a plate section where there is some of the, the key kits for reference. But I do imagine that a lot of people are reading this with the book open on one side and particularly the kind of more casual readers and also Googling frantically the, you know, Bochum 97, 98 kit with the other hand. That's a good call. That that will be uh, almost the perfect insight into someone reading the book. Having that kind of interaction with it, I think, would be great if you people did do that and think, "Oh, what does that kid look like?" So yeah, I think you've a great call there. That'd be great to see if people do. And there's certainly room for that, isn't there? 
a lot of books about kits tend to be like coffee table books. They do tend to be visual almost to the to the detriment of everything else. Even when like you'll have a book about a specific club, they'll tell you about Brian Dean's playing days rather than the construction of the shirt. And you think, well, you know, I can find out about Brian Dean from many other sources. If I'm buying a book about kits, I wouldn't mind knowing a bit more about the kit he wore. And I'm just thinking, you know, the kit designers from the last two decades have sort of become quasi celebrities with their YouTube videos breaking down current kits. But there isn't much of a focus on the origins of the football shirt. And that's a niche that you've embraced in this book. You got to put on white snooker referee gloves and go to the National Football Museum's archives and have a play around with their stuff. What was the most illuminating research about the early years you uncovered, you feel? I think there are a couple of things. I mean, as uh, you know, for for us guys who are really big football kit fans, you know, it's getting your hands on some 1880s and 1870s kits and you know you can imagine just sort of like it's just a very exciting thing isn't it it's just nice you think that's the real genesis of the game and when the game was so small that it was only professional or in some cases amateur in England and and so it's now something that's played by billions of people around the world But, but these are the first few like successful leading players and you're hands-on with these match-worn shirts at the real kind of birth of the game so that was really exciting and as I, I kind of mentioned in the book it's also sort of slightly deflating in the sense that if you if you take away your kind of aura, aura of wonder they're just bog standard shirts there's nothing you know they, they, the international ones did have a badge you know they deigned to actually have some form of decoration but you know you think about what's on it today you know sponsors and patches and badges and names and numbers and stuff it's just a shirt that you any guy would wear to work with if you're lucky at an international side the badge plonked on it so I suppose it's extraordinary because of that context you put on it but very ordinary if you look at it in a dispassionate way. And then the other thing is, again, it's sort of a trick of black and white photography that everybody looks very sober and down. I suppose that was the way you acted when you took photos. But when you looked, when I looked at some of the catalogues that were kind of turn of the century, I think I mentioned when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, there was this uh, design, the Bolivian, which was these green red and yellow striped and just you know even in the 1990s that would have been a pretty loud you know sort of a Jorge Campos keeper kit but 95 years early so that was a bit of a surprise because again we watch all these things that in these video reels in black and white and you think actually there were you know not quite white boot wearing strikers but people like to show off and be loud in their choices even you know, a century, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, from a design point of view, they, they had more in common with like, horse racing uniforms than they did what we'd now think of an old-fashioned football show. Yeah, and of course, they were they were wearing the same as what rugby teams would be wearing too. You know, there was no real distinction at the time. So it's just interesting to see how things have evolved in the different directions. How, how difficult, Alex, was it to filter all the stuff you'd learned down into one volume like was there any any point you thought I might need to do a part one and a part two or anything like that I think there were certain bits and it's how much detail you go into them like the the designs you know there's if for each one I, I really like the 
city specific or club specific designs particularly when they're clever or you know say things like the city hacienda or something you know somebody like latches onto a genuinely original kind of element of of culture and and uses it nicely and you could go through 200 pages of just teams that have done that so i think it was more it could have done that but it was sort of giving those examples you know these are three or four teams that have used say the local influence and then leaving people to kind of explore the other 500 that examples that are out there so on the re-release paperback version of pretty polly and with the additional chapter that you're going to write is um, what are you thinking is there anything in there that you wish you had to put in that time or if you had the opportunity to put in a, an additional chapter is there something else that you'd like to add i suppose and i know it's a a thing that that I said I think to a couple of you is uh, I did I did try I'm not I'm not a women's football fan uh, as in I don't follow the game closely you know I I don't even watch much men's football nowadays but I, I do like many areas it, it hasn't received as obviously as much attention and I really did try and dig out what was there in terms of the history and obviously there's not been as much variation and things like that but I think there's still more to tell from that, but I, I did put a couple of calls out and tried to sort of get in contact and people like Professor Gene Williams were, were great in terms of giving me what, what I did do, but I think that could be beefed up next time. Uh, I found that really difficult to get any sort of information. You know, there are resources online, but it's just not covered as much. So I think that's an area that need I, I would improve. Would you say that deserves a book of its own? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a, a a great story. Where the the little that I did get into it, and I think there's so much potential. And there's so much to think about because it's it's a game really in flux. We we often lament the fact that the design has gone quite staid. Perhaps there hasn't been so much innovation really in the men's game in terms of shirts and so on. But I think the last few years are actually when women specific designs have started to emerge and you've got a whole maybe different palette and a whole different set of designs to to pick from and teams many teams you think of angel city they're only just having their first sort of couple of seasons of shirts so they're yet to kind of find that identity and they're not going to hark back to retro designs because there is no kind of dustbin to to raid for that fair enough but, you know, for a Manchester United supporter, I think you show an admirable lack of partisanship. You know, you acknowledge the the importance of some rival clubs on the, the development of kick culture. I just wondered if that was something that came naturally, came easy, or whether it's something you had to remind yourself of that how important it was when refining your book. I'm a hideously partisan fan to do with anything on the pitch. So I felt like this is kind of my safe little window where I could actually be a reasonable and responsible adult human being. So uh, if we ever watch a match together when when Liverpool or uh, somebody are involved, then uh, I think it'd be quite a different tale. Although I probably will hope that I can credit the kit. In fact, I did did do a a sort of roundup of this year's Premier League home kits and I, I did put City and Liverpool right up there. So, yeah, maybe a reformed character. That's, that's what they say on social media is a, a very classy gesture. <laughs> yeah. Liz, as, as listeners might know, he, he's a Hull City fan by birth and a Sampdoria fan by fashion, basically. Is it like that with you and Borussia Dortmund? 
think probably similar yeah that I, I i do follow their results and i do like going to watch them and i would probably call them my second club but there's no way on earth that they would they're, they're a long way away from first they're probably a long way ahead of third but yeah it's definitely a definite second club was that to do with the kit or were there other reasons was it because they were going well in the 90s a few things, uh, yeah, I think came to attention in the 90s when they were doing well. Again, that kind of club culture. Matthias Sammer uh, really was one of those players that just stood out for me in the 90s. Just this kind of otherworldly thing. It's like Libera of somebody stepping up from midfield. You know, when we were still having our rigid back four and four four two, this sort of more fluid thing seemed otherworldly. And then what my, my colleague, my PhD supervisor, is from Dortmund. And so... Uh, I would uh, and I go regularly go over to to Cologne for for work so it's yeah kind of got into it and went to a few games and you can't help the first time you go you know to just be totally entranced by the whole whole thing and neon yellow or normal yellow <laughs> a tough call uh I think I'll have to say neon yellow because so few of the golden yellow shirts are available in long sleeves, particularly over the last 10 years or so. So that's, I've, I've yeah, I've picked up, I think the last one was that sort of hazard style diagonal slashes one, which I thought was pretty cool in, in long sleeve, but, but I haven't picked up many of the recent ones. Okay. One of the first Dortmund games I went to, I had one of the neon shirts on and the, the fans liaison officer told me how much he hated that because you know, it wasn't <laughs> traditional. But then in the next breath, he told me he also liked Leeds. So I realised I could discount his opinion. <laughs> I, I've been to a few Dortmund away games, particularly recently. So I went to Rangers at Ibrox, which was a shitload of fun. It was really, really good. We got um, police escort from the centre of of Glasgow to the the stadium and so on and and fantastic atmosphere and so on but at these away games it it was incredible to me how popular that null neon you know the special edition fourth shirt loads of match going away fans you know the the hardcore of the hardcore loads of I think it was the most popular shirt I saw and so obviously and again I presume it's the same sort of thing as me you know maybe 30 years old 40 years old grown up with that around their adolescence and then it's not such an unfamiliar thing to them when it comes out. And Dortmund are probably unusual among the top European clubs, well, maybe except the ones in Turkey, in that they don't need a third kit unless they played with Tess Arnhem in Europe. And so every year they've they basically launched two yellow kits, one one for the league and one for the Cups, isn't it? Where do you stand on that? Because it seems like the kind of thing that if it happened in England, you'd have the usual suspects up in arms. But... There's a kind of a nice logic to it, and they've done it for so long. Like they've done it back since the mid to late nineties. I presume the fans are, are used to it by this stage. Yeah, and I think also the it's it's a common thing. There's other ones, sort of Oktoberfest kits. A lot of the teams or teams in Nord Rhine-Westphalia, where Carnival is kind of really important cultural thing. You know, there is a Carnival kit and things like that. So it's it's. I think it's used maybe more of a club specific sort of celebration. And I think, you know, this year, maybe not the greatest reception, but that fa- fan designed version, you know, there there are kind of these special editions that, yeah, I think are more acceptable than just a generic third shirt. Yeah. 
a good way of looking at it. So the Dortmund shirt actually plays quite a pivotal role on your front cover. And that's something I wanted to ask you about. How did the concept and how did that cover come about? Because it is, for kit lovers, it's a it's a great just piece of artwork anyway. I just wondered how you got that and how those ideas there, were there kits that didn't make the cut? Did you have any issues not being able to put a kit on there or fairly plain sailing for the design process? Yeah, so... The publisher asked uh, what I was interested in. So, you, you know, Rob Fletcher. So Rob Fletcher uh, is a pal of mine who also did a, a, a book recently through the same publisher. And he'd sort of explained that, you know, this process, you're probably going to get asked about your choices for front cover. And Rob is a much more kind of visual and arty guy than, than I am. So we had this late night WhatsApp swap of of things and, and Rob sort of fed a few things in and so on. And I, I think the, the key for me was there was some suggestions from pitch that you'd have a lot of the pitch covers kind of use these montages of players and there was an idea that you could use montage of players in different iconic kits so you might think i don't know batistuta in a nintendo kit pele in his 1970 brazil kit and so on but i thought that was you're always going to see it as pele and maradona and batistuta so i just wanted the kits and then i think that even the tiny details are so nostalgic and Dennis and I have sort of talked about this about type two and and for, for me even the name sets when I look at, at United's name sets the cup name sets we've had about 15 or 16 over the the Premier League era and each one of them gives an immediate memory it's just a typeset you know you just see the a to z and the zero to nine and so I wanted to kind of have that evoke that thing that people would just see a simplified stylistic version of it and it would kind of twig a memory and I hope that's kind of what it does like thinking through everybody who is a football fan can pick out four or five you might not get the whole nine but you'll see it and something will kind of twig and then I imagine you guys the whole is it nine I'm trying to frantically look at the front cover but yeah yeah 12 it's 12 even yeah if it's um it's something that I know if I walk in past you know and even me 10 years ago walking past this if I'd have seen this on the shelf I'd have been like right Sampdoria Argentina Dortmund I've been trying to guess it picking up the book and then that's what you want I guess it's it's that appeal to pick the book up and then see what it's about so yeah it's it's a great piece of art I hope you've got it framed somewhere as well as a as a copy of uh, of the book when you were putting the book together Alex did you get an appreciation for any brands that you'd perhaps previously overlooked maybe an uh i think that because i'm in my 90s wheelhouse and they just crept into the 90s really or limped into the 90s i think more like and so they weren't really on my collecting radar so didn't get as much but they they are absolutely beautiful and spoke to to damien who does the remakes with within a and again just we did i did a a piece like a magazine piece about that and uh, related to it and as i was going through in a in the manufacturer's chapter you just think about it a bit more in the process and the the fact that they had these artisans so it was you know originally it was woven by nuns on in this nunnery in a a mountainside and you just evokes all these kind of memories and so on and you know it was a small kind of artisan word that's probably been corrupted now but a proper sort of you know traditional craft type of activity and it seems incredible even you know what's that 
not even 40 years ago when you've got the Serie A team's kits, Diego Maradona's Serie A winning kit being made in this way. So I, I think that was something that really, yeah, had appreciation I didn't previously have. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Italian stuff from that era is a story all unto itself, isn't it? You know, while elsewhere you had cotton going to nylon, going to polyester in Italy, you had this acrylic wool, you know, which just looks really heavy and, and hot. The, the players running around in these heavy, usually long-sleeved wool-looking garments, even when, when they get advertised, they call them lanetta, you know, they're referring to wool, even though it is, a, is acrylic. It's a whole kit culture story of its own. Yeah, in LA, definitely there, there's just something so evocative about them. And the, the 19, I, I've written before about how the 1990 91 Serie A season is one that really resonates with me because it was the first year that highlights would be shown in Ireland on a Monday night. And that was their last season as a proper player in Serie A. I think they had Atalanta, Napoli, and Roma. And the following season, Atalanta were with Lotto. Napoli were an Umbro and Roma were an Adidas and even just to compare the kits is um it's really a real kind of eye-opener and it brings me on to the next very cliched question Alex of what your favorite ever shirt is I'll give the equally cliched answer so uh or, or should I try and avoid the Borussia Dortmund 96-97 cup away shirt that that feels like it's uh I did have a feeling that might be the answer, given that you wore it at the launch. Yeah. Am I right in saying that was never actually worn on the pitch? As far as I'm aware, never worn, which is, some people would suggest makes it invalid as a, a, a shirt choice. No, I, I think I think we'll allow you, given that you wrote the book on it. Uh, but yeah, it's a beautiful, you know, I love those. I think that Nike, there is designer called Drake Ramberg and they did these really bold designs kind of he came not from a soccer background which many of the fantastic designers I think you've covered it previously on the podcast like many of the best designers never they're not football fans who think designer of the 88-90 West Germany shirt who think of the many of the designers at Admiral they had no background in football and so that thing that we have now where everything is sort of repeats and repeats and repeats it seems it, it wasn't you had this new genuine kind of innovation because people were coming out there and had no idea what a football shirt should look like you know what the thickness of the stripe should be how it should be designed and they could just chuck something totally new in there talking about Ina Franzman the creator of the Holland 88 and the, the West Germany 88 to 90 designs do you know what she's doing nowadays no idea She's designing performance wear for orchestra conductors and people who are in orchestras. So you're now going to find terms like sweat wicking being used when they're talking about conductors jackets and having specially constructive sleeves for range of conducting motion. Fascinating woman that. And have conductors, are, are they still on a two-year cycle or are they gone to a one-year cycle now? <laughs> There's a massive debate about the amount of sponsorship on the, on the front of them. It's, it's not deemed oh, appropriate. Yeah. I, I'm a traditionalist. I like them in the black. <laughs> yeah, so I'm looking forward to see the change kit version they come up with. And only 30 years after Andy Muller was conducting the German orchestra. <laughs> yeah, the, the batons, you know, you can get the authentic or the... the the concert hall versions. 
something Dennis just alluded to was your book launch that you uh, hosted on the 11th of August um, in London. Tell us about that. How did that come about? How did you pull that panel of guests together? Because it was, uh, I was lucky enough to be there along with Les and it was a fantastic evening uh, enjoyed by us all, I think. I just want to know how that all came about. Yeah, well, it's not every day you publish a book and it just uh, felt in a kind of YOLO spirit that, you know, any excuse for a party kind of thing. So uh, I originally had planned to do it in Manchester at, at my university, but that became problematic in the summer. Then I thought, well, classic football shirts, because I've done a couple of bits with them. But anybody who's been to the Manchester store knows you, you probably squeeze five or ten people in there at, at best. So the guys that I know, uh, Josh there, so he said, oh, why don't you do it in London? So felt like, you know, kind of the retail home of football shirts. It seemed like a good, good match. So arrange that and then I just want to kind of have a few different voices on on there. So I suppose John spoke for this podcast in a way, you know, somebody come very much from that kit interest, kit expert, kit collector kind of side. You can say say nerds. (laughs) I've pounded myself right in the the thick of that. But but, and then then a couple of people just with like different perspectives. You know, so one of the things that, that did come up from the book, which you know about, but it, again, one of the things, just the sheer scale of it is the financial point. You know, Arsenal and Chelsea, sort of 30 percent of their income coming from from kits. And I think I said it on, on that Friday, you know, United United's annual income from their kit is about the same as the lowest 14 Premier League teams combined. And that. You know, it's a huge source of financial inequality in the Premier League and other leagues as well. You know, same for Real Madrid over in in Spain, and and so Kieran Maguire really liked his podcast. Had spoken to him as part of the of the book, and he had some really interesting things to say. So he was given the financial aspect, and then I did want somebody from kind of more the design and the fashion side. I had a, a colleague who's a, a fashion curator, and she'd been designing this. A fantastic exhibitions coming up with Umbro's Centenary next year and kind of looking at it as a fashion and design brand so slightly apart from the football but just how they made the clothes and and how it integrated with fashion and and its kind of place uh, so they're coming at it more from a kind of generic what clothes mean about humans and our society and stuff like that. and I thought that was another really almost kind of like inspecting us kit fans as as like zoo exhibits in a way you know so a very different perspective and and yeah so the three of them agreed and there we were we had our our event it was uh say certainly a great evening and you know i think you hosted it brilliantly and your q a at the beginning as well was uh fantastic and really insightful um so yeah it was just a, a great evening so thank you again for for arranging and hosting i really enjoyed it so as a, any good writer that you are, there's always the next project. Can you tell us anything about your next project or what you're working on next? Yeah, so the, the next one is a history of, of Umbro working on it at the moment. So um, I know particularly close to the hearts of one of the regulars in uh, on the podcast. But yeah, so looking at them over the next 100 years, so Umbro turns 100 next May and Again, just telling that story from inside. It's a it's a company, so there's people involved, and you know how that kind of worked. Also, its place within football has just been there at all these important moments in football. You know, right the way through. So from 
Man City FA Cup in 34-35, the, the final winners, you know, England, Pele's first cup, World Cup win, England's first cup, World Cup win is United fans, 68 and 99 European Cups. You know, even coming to the modern era, you've got things like Chelsea with Abramovich, you've got City and the takeover, their first league title, Neymar's debut, Eden Hazard, and then last year, you think, like, West Ham, obviously, their their European trophy. You know, almost every meme is is encapsulated in an Umbro shirt. That, so, you know, Luton, and you saw these endless images of their entering their stadium through a terraced house and Will Still and Rems. You know, just they're just there. Like, you pick out 50-60% of your football moments and there's an Umbro kit in it. So it's about that. And obviously, they've been central to that evolution of football, going from a really simple game and that whole sports marketing and manufacturing industry. And, and they've just been a constant throughout. So it's been a tremendous amount of fun. I think I've enjoyed it even more, I think, than the kit book um, so far. And it's been, been lucky to be interviewing a lot of people who are involved with the company. And so I think that's given a lot as well to it so yeah a lot of fun and, and and hopefully enjoy that when it surfaces next year we have one question from a listener michael young and he wanted to know alex's opinions on new kits which seek to evoke old ones and the examples he provided were arsenal's not quite a bruised banana from 2019-20 or liverpool's reinterpreted green quarters from this season half-hearted messes or genuine retro throwbacks for nostalgia geeks it's like anything isn't it if it's done well it's good you know there is kind of cultural capital in those designs and they're popular for a reason because they're very good designs and if you can make a faithful or you know an original homage or do a good job of taking those cues then of course it's good and it hurts more probably than just a generic crap design when it's crap because it is kind of besmirching your heritage. But I think like the Arsenal shirt which came out again, not being a, an Arsenal fan, I, I just thought that that was excellent. So the the green body and navy sleeves and just again like subtle details. That little AFC on the collar the collar was nineteen ninety two home, and you know it's uh, subtle. It's yeah. Not, 1992 yeah yeah and I, I thought that was so so well done and so it's it's like anything you do it well it looks great it probably hurts a bit more when it goes wrong I'm not really sure how companies can avoid the past when you you're tasked with coming up with three brand new kits every season you know it's impossible not to look back to the inspiration you the one-year kit cycle doesn't allow for genuine innovation in terms of the the technologies of the shares. It certainly seems to have slowed down from that period of the 2000s where the, the technological part of the, of the kits seemed to take precedence over the look of it. But yeah, I just don't, don't know how you don't do it. And then then as well, you know, if you if you do start innovating in terms of design and going far away from what the clubs had before, surely you do want to build on on heritage because you can say. Well, Liverpool had that kit in 1977, and they also had it in the 1990s. But that means it looks like a Liverpool kit, and and how do you how do you achieve that if you don't build on what's gone before? I think the thing that I find kind of most frustrating about it is when they try to jam in a narrative about retro inspiration, where it 
probably isn't it's probably this is the design of the kit and then actually or oh, let's try and fit a narrative around it that it's retro and one that springs to mind is the warrior change kit of liverpool the purple black one which was loosely quartered and you and i think the narrative there was oh this is based on the the same shirt that the away kit is based on this year the 90s six i think away quartered shirt but it's black and it's purple and it's got nothing to do with it just you know own the design and go look we're just doing something completely different you know this is nothing we've done before there's some link with purple and the city of liverpool but it's brand new you know trying to fit that narrative and jam that narrative into a retro thing i think is where it becomes a little bit frustrating for me I always find myself agreeing with Dennis on when I when I hear the podcast, but I, I think that there's, there was one thing that I think specifically I remember you saying about ticket stubs and people using the design of the ticket stubs as a bit of an inspiration. The idea of 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 clubs taking these tiniest little facts and you know the most desperate sort of clinging and raiding of the the like cultural rubbish bin of a of a club. And I remember the remember the United sixty eight blue shirt from 2008 and around the collar they had this sort of diagonal blue and white striping and that, that was exactly that was from the ticket from from the game and I, I was really really impressed by, by that and then I think Dennis said exactly opposite. I, I didn't actually know that that kit had that because that's actually a lovely kit because you know it, it's as close as you get to a modern kind of take on a, a 60s classic you know which is hard to, to avoid looking like it when there wasn't much in the way of designs back then i i think i think the the one i had in mind was a pink celtic kit where they were saying oh the ticket stubs in lisbon in 1967 were pink and this is why we were pink kit which just seemed a bit too much but my, my view is that a straight copy is fairly boring but something that nods to the old one but in a fresh new way is the ideal i feel yeah luton yeah. have done that very well with with their yeah. kit, haven't they? and i saw some supporters saying well why couldn't you have just made that a, a solid stripe well because it would just be a one-on-one remake of that shirt they had in in the 70s it's got it's got to be a, a little bit different yeah i think um, when it comes to this there should always be they should always have to put in in large italics after the blurb the, in the most minor way possible. This Chelsea kit is a, a riffing on the 90s kit in the most minor way possible. And it, I think that, that that's also a bad thing about it because that was awful, wasn't it? I mean, that I re- that put that at the bottom of my the, the home kits for this season. I, I just thought it was... It, it, and I think that's the worst thing about it. It is sort of besmirching because that's a really nice kit. And I imagine as a Chelsea fan, you know, it's one of those that even if you're not that fussed about kits, you see it and it's a very evocative, it's very distinctive and so on. And then you do this kind of crap version. You think not o- the problem is not only is it crap itself and it's sort of making your memory not so good, but you know it's also they're not going to touch that again for another 10 years because they've done it. So your chance of getting a good copy based off this lovely shirt is is gone. Like we're I love the snowflake and we're probably not going to get another one for another five or ten years. And and I wasn't that enamoured with the one last year. So you think, damn, you know, got another decade to wait before we get another pop at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, greater minds than ours will will come up with a solution. 
Alex, very much looking forward to the Umbro block. I want you to give us a sincere promise that when you find the people who thought sports wool was a good idea and was developing that, <laughs> I want you to send us their telephone number, email, because I've got I've got many questions of of these. Fascinated by the sports wool stuff. How anybody thought this heavy garment that these days is used by cyclists when they're going up mountains to to sort of keep warm was suitable for a summer international tournament when both Norway and England had it at Euro 2000. Uh, it's, one, it's one of those um, innovations, perhaps an innovation that's just been sort of forgotten about, but it's it's something I'm really keen to, to find out more about. So I'm looking forward to your research notes on that one. So thank you so much to Alex for coming on. Just again, for anybody listening who wants to get in touch with you or to buy the book, where is best to do that? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Alex D Ireland. And you can buy the book again. Make sure to Google either Pretty Polly Alex Ireland or Pretty Polly the History of the Football Shirt if, if you don't want to end up with a pair of tights. Or you can find it on what, the main sites, Waterstones, Amazon. Again, independent bookshop, Stanchion, if you want to support an independent. Then, uh, yeah, plenty of places. Excellent. All the best with it. And we will certainly have you on again next year for the launch of the Umbro one. Thank you, Alex, for coming on. And thank you to you for listening. And Football Kit Podcast will return. <laughs>